Welcome to Hub History, the show where we share our favorite stories from Boston history. This is episode 127, Marathon Women. Hi, I'm Jake. And I'm Nikki. This week, we're talking about the history of the Boston Marathon and two trailblazing women who opened up the course for the stronger sex, Bobby Gibb and Catherine Switzer. The Boston Marathon was first run in April of 1897, after Bostonians were inspired by the revival of the marathon for the 1896 Summer Olympics in Athens. It's the oldest continuously running marathon, arguably the most prestigious, and the second longest continually running foot race in North America, having debuted five months after the Buffalo Turkey Trot. Women were not allowed to officially enter the Boston Marathon until 1972. In 1966, Bobby Gibb became the first woman to run the Boston Marathon. In 1967, Catherine Switzer, who had registered as K.V. Switzer, became the first woman to run and finish with a race number, despite the race manager's best efforts. But before we talk about the famous and infamous course from Hopkinton to Copley Square, it's time for this week's Boston Book Club selection and our upcoming historical event. We have two recommendations for the Boston Book Club this week one of which is a book that's deeply tied to this week's show but we haven't read, and the other of which is only sort of connected to the show, but we've both read and enjoyed it. We'll start with the one we're familiar with. Bill Rogers, known for decades as Boston Billy, is synonymous with the Boston Marathon in many minds. Starting in 1973, he came out of nowhere and started racking up marathon victories, including four at Boston and four in New York. After retiring from competition, he ran a running store at Faneuil Hall called the Bill Rogers Running Center, and at 72, he's still a fixture at races around the region, sometimes providing commentary or simply signing books, and sometimes running the races for charity. The book, however, is the story of his rise to glory in the years leading up to his first win in Boston. He describes his early love of running and the good fortune that allowed him to train with some of the best runners in the world. Many of his tales are relatable for anyone who runs in Boston. He describes his first round of serious marathon training in 1973 when he lived in Jamaica Plain and tried to log at least 20 miles every day. Most of those miles were a steady grind on the short loop around Jamaica Pond. On the very first day in his 20-mile training plan, he logged 13 miles of endless laps around the pond in the afternoon, another six miles after dinner, then describes getting out of bed just before midnight to run one more mile to be able to meet his goal before the day's official end. For Rogers... The challenge wasn't running 20 miles in a day. It was crossing the Jamaica Way. He writes, Before I could enter the park, first I had to cross a four-lane death trap called the Jamaica Way. Motorists, hyped up on Dunkin' Donut coffee, zoomed by me as I formulated a plan for surviving my mad dash across the road. If I had ever doubted that a car could be an instrument of irrational rage, I was convinced now. After surviving the perilous crossing of the parkway, I emerged into the wide-open vista of the park's gorgeous 68-acre pond. Once I reached the small dirt path at the edge of the pond, I started running along it. Quickly, I settled into a nice groove. There was no better feeling in the world to me than this high. For marathon fans, the highlight of the book will likely be his detailed memories of his first Boston victory in 1975, as well as the joy and exuberance in running that ooze out on every page. We'll have a link to purchase the book in this week's show notes. Bobby Gibb has a book that, although neither of us has read it yet, sounds similar in spirit to Roger's book. Called Wind in the Fire, it's a volume of memoir focused on her training and inspiration in becoming the first woman to finish the Boston Marathon. 
On the flyleaf, she says, The wind and the fire is the recounting of the two years, from the time I first saw the Boston Marathon and fell in love with it in 1964, to the time I became the first woman to ever run the Boston Marathon in 1966. During that time, I trained and followed my spiritual path. This is the story of that journey. We'll also link to more about Bobby Gibbs' book in the show notes. And for our upcoming event this week, we have a major event from one of our suburban historical societies. On the weekend of May 18th and 19th, Historic Newton is hosting their 37th annual house tour. For a single admission fee, you'll get access to tour six historic homes in one of the oldest towns in the Commonwealth, most of which are private residences that aren't usually open to the public. The event promises both a glimpse into local history and a dab of inspiration for your home renovation projects. Tickets to the house tour are $35, and advanced registration is strongly recommended. We'll have the links you need in this week's show notes. The house tour is one of Historic Newton's major fundraisers for the year, and it includes a special bonus event. On the evening of May 18th, you can join their preview party for cocktails and appetizers hosted at a historic private home, which they describe as one of Newton's best examples of craftsman-style architecture. The home has been residence to a state legislator, a theater owner, a restaurateur, plus Brandeis University's founder, and two of its presidents. Guests who have visited include Eleanor Roosevelt, John F. Kennedy, the Dalai Lama, Leonard Bernstein, Mark Chagall, Ralph Bunch, Marian Anderson, Golda Meir, and Earl Warren. In 1919, the house was a target of an anarchist bombing linked to a group associated with Sacco and Vanzetti. This spring will mark the incident's 100th anniversary. Graciously restored, stewarded, and preserved for over a century, the home is listed on the National Register of Historic Places. Our hosts have updated the home with a nod to the past that enables guests to appreciate its historical significance. The preview party does require a significant additional contribution to Historic Newton, but it sounds like a fantastic event with historical ties to events we've covered on the podcast in the past. We'll also have links to more information on the event in this week's show notes. And now it's time for our main topic. To start at the beginning... The name Marathon comes from the legend of Pheidippides, the Greek messenger sent from the battlefield of Marathon to Athens to announce that the Persians had been defeated in the Battle of Marathon, which took place in 490 BC. It is said that he ran the entire distance without stopping and burst into the assembly exclaiming, We have won, before collapsing and dying. The account of the run from Marathon to Athens first appears in Plutarch's On the Glory of Athens in the 1st century CE. That in turn quotes from a lost Greek text, which gives the runner's name as either Thersippus of Erceus or of Eucles. Satirist Lucian of Samosata in the 2nd century CE first gives an account closest to the modern version of the story, but he was writing tongue-in-cheek and also names the runner Philippides, not Pheidippides. There is debate about the historical accuracy of this legend. The Greek historian Herodotus, the main source for the Greco-Persian Wars, mentions Philippides as the messenger who ran from Athens to Sparta asking for help and then ran back, a distance of over 150 miles each way. Herodotus makes no mention of a messenger sent from Marathon to Athens and relates that the main part of the Athenian army, having fought and won the grueling battle and fearing a naval raid by the Persian fleet against an undefended Athens, marched quickly back from the battle to Athens, arriving the same day. 
1879, Robert Browning wrote the poem Pheidippides. Browning's composite story became part of late 19th century popular culture and was accepted as a historic legend, a situation familiar to fans of Paul Revere inspired by Longfellow's poem. A mountain stands between Marathon and Athens, which means that if Philippides or Pheidippides actually made his famous run after the battle, he also had to run around the mountain, either to the north or to the south. The latter and more obvious route matches almost exactly the modern Marathon-Athens Highway, which follows the lay of the land southwards from Marathon Bay and along the coast, then takes a gentle but protracted climb westwards toward the eastern approach to Athens, through the foothills, and then gently downhill to Athens proper. This route, as it existed when the Olympics were revived in 1896, was approximately 25 miles long, and this was the approximate distance originally used for marathon races. When the modern Olympics began in 1896, the initiators and organizers were looking for a showcase event recalling the glory of ancient Greece. The idea of a marathon race came from Michel Brial, founder of the International Olympic Committee with Pierre de Coubertin. In a letter to de Coubertin dated September 15, 1894, Brial wrote, If you go to Athens, you could try and see if a long-distance run from Marathon to Finks could be organized. That would emphasize the character of antiquity. If we had known the time that the Greek soldier had needed for the distance, we could have set up a record. I, personally, claim the honor of sponsoring the Marathon Trophy. With the location of the game set for Athens, and the Marathon now on the roster, the Greeks were adamant that one of their countrymen take the trophy. Two races were held in advance of the games to identify the most competitive runners. An article in the Journal of Olympic History includes multiple first-hand accounts of the first Olympic marathon, including the following recollection from Eugene P. Andrews. The runners had started from marathon two hours ago. A cannon shot was to announce the entrance of the leading man into Athens. At last there came the dull thud. The suspense and excitement became almost unendurable. Greece had to win this. A Greek had won a minor victory in a gymnastics event, but this was the last chance for the blue and white flag to climb the pole for a major victory. A cavalryman came spurring down the street. At the entrance, he spoke a word to someone there, and it flashed around the stadium and drove 50,000 people crazy. A Greek. At last, the white-clad figure comes in sight. All the officials, except one, scurry to the entrance. Professor Wheeler, judge at the finish, stays where he belongs, at the finish line. Crown Prince Constantine, president of the Games, dropping all pretense of royal formality and reserve, meets the runner and trots along beside him to the tape. Women strip off their jewels and hurl them at this villager who has saved the honor of the Hellas. 50,000 people absolutely mad with joy. I shall never see anything like it again. The event was also reported by the Boston Globe. Athens, April 10th. The weather changed last night, and this morning the sun rose in a cloudless sky. The atmosphere was balmy and spring-like, and every condition was favorable for the carrying out of the fifth day's program of the Olympic Games, which included the final heats of the unfinished events of Monday and Tuesday. The long-distance race from Marathon over the historic road followed by the messenger centuries ago bearing the news of the defeat of the Persians, was won by Louis, a Greek peasant, and his victory was greeted with thunders of applause. 
This victory has done much to soothe the disappointment felt by the Greeks at the downfall of some of their champions. In this event, there were 20 competitors, including Arthur Blake of the Boston Athletic Association. Blake and Flack, the Australian, were forced to abandon the race. Both dropped out exhausted when they had covered half the distance. When the winner crossed the finishing line, the spectators rose to their feet, and for a time, every sound was silenced by the great roar of praise that ascended. Prince Constantine, the heir apparent to the throne, was, with other members of the royal household, in the box set apart for the use of the king and his family. He left his seat and, walking to the winner, shook him heartily by the hand. The enthusiasm was renewed when Vasilikos, another Greek, came in second, and Bolokas, also a Greek, came in third. The result was immediately telegraphed throughout the country, and in many towns the victory was joyously celebrated. Trikupis, one of the Greek competitors, was exhausted by his exertions and is now prostrated. The prize, in addition to an olive wreath, is a handsome cup given by M. Brial, a well-known French savant and writer on mythological subjects. The time of the winner was 2 hours and 48 minutes. Vasilikos covered the distance in 3 hours. With the news of this new sporting event, the Boston Athletic Association, formed 10 years earlier to encourage all manly sports and promote physical culture, began planning its inaugural marathon. On April 19, 1897, the association held the 24-and-a-half-mile marathon to conclude its athletic competition, the BAA Games. The inaugural winner was John J. J.J. McDermott, who ran the 24-and-a-half-mile course in 2 hours, 55 minutes, and 10 seconds, leading a field of 15. The event was scheduled for the recently established holiday of Patriots Day, with the race linking the Athenian and American struggles for liberty. The race, which became known as the Boston Marathon, has been held every year since then, even during the World War years, making it the world's oldest annual marathon. In 1924, the starting line was moved from Metcalfe's Mill in Ashland to Hopkinton Green, and the course was lengthened to 26 miles, 385 yards, in order to conform to the standards set by the 1908 Summer Olympics and codified by the IAAF in 1921. Due to the belief that women's uteruses would fall out, the race was founded as a men's-only event and remained such for over 70 years. The first woman to complete the course was Bobby Gibb. Bobby Gibb grew up in the suburbs of Boston during the 1940s and 50s. She studied at the School of the Museum of Fine Arts and at Tufts University School of Special Studies. Her running included daily commuting of the eight miles to school, which she ran in white leather Red Cross nurse's shoes because there were no running shoes available for women at the time. Gibb trained for two years to run the Boston Marathon, covering as much as 40 miles in one day. On writing for an application in February of 1966, she received a letter from the race director, Will Clooney, informing her that women were not physiologically capable of running marathon distances and that under the rules that governed amateur sports set out by the Amateur Athletic Union, women were not allowed to run more than a mile and a half competitively. In an interview with the Bill Rogers Running Center, Gibb recalled her response to the letter. I was thunderstruck. Here it was again, that mindless discrimination against women that so infuriated me. If you were a woman, it seemed you weren't allowed to do anything. I was angry and hurt. I realized that there was now an even greater reason to run. I had to prove that women could do this, and felt sure that once people realized this, the race would open up. They just didn't know. 
Women themselves didn't know that they could do this. Evidently, there were no women marathoners at the time except me. Women weren't allowed to run more than a mile and a half. And more importantly, I realized that if I could prove this prejudice to be wrong, I would throw into question all the other prejudices and false beliefs about women. I laughed to myself as I thought how many prejudices would crumble as I trotted along for 26.2 miles. After three nights and four days on a bus from San Diego, Gibb arrived the day before the race at her parents' house in Winchester. On the morning of Patriots Day, April 19, 1966, her mother dropped her off at the start in Hopkinton. I was dressed in my brother's Bermuda shorts and a blue hooded sweatshirt with the hood up, wearing new boys' size 6 running shoes. The new shoes turned out to be a big mistake. I ran to Hopkinton Common, where the race starts, and circled around to get the lay of the land. I saw the pen where the men started. I knew if I got into the pen, they'd immediately have me removed. I had to stay hidden. I found a clump of bushes as near to the start as I could possibly get. Then, thinking I had to warm up, I went off behind some buildings and ran up and down an alley for 30 to 40 minutes. As the time of the start approached, I returned to the bushes and waited. The starting gun fired. I waited for half the pack to go by, then I jumped in. Gibb was welcomed and encouraged by the men running the race. She recalls, Within just a few minutes, the guys behind me, studying my anatomy from the rear, realized I was a woman. I knew if the runners were hostile, they could easily shoulder me out. I was there alone, unprotected. This was the most important moment. To my great relief and everlasting gratitude, they were friendly. They said, Are you a woman? I smiled and turned around. It is a woman, they exclaimed. I wish my girlfriend would run, one of them said. These guys were great. It's getting hot with this hood on, I said. But I'm afraid if they see I'm a woman, they'll throw me out. We won't let them throw you out, they agreed. It's a free road. Again, I was apprehensive. Sometimes when you do something this far outside the social norm, people can be hostile. I took the hood off, and to my great relief, the crowds cheered. The men clapped and said, Atta go, girly! And the women screamed and shouted. I knew I had to do this in a non-threatening, upbeat way to win people over, especially the officials and other runners. I wanted to inspire people to run, and I wanted to show that women can do things that they never dreamed they could do. Diana Chapman Walsh, later president of Wellesley College, recalled the day years later. That was my senior year at Wellesley. As I had done every spring since I arrived on campus, I went out to cheer on the runners. But there was something different about the marathon day, like a spark down a wire. The word spread to all us lining the route that a woman was running the course. For a while, the screech tunnel fell silent. We scanned face after face in breathless anticipation until just ahead of her, through the excited crowd, a ripple of recognition shot through the lines and we cheered as we never had before. We let out a roar that day, sensing that this woman had done something more than just break the gender barrier in a famous race. Bobby finished with a time of 3.21.40. But note, I didn't say she finished the race. Because while she crossed the finish line, she was not a Boston Marathon finisher. And this is the point where we discuss divisions. Before 1966, the longest amateur athletic union sanctioned race for women was one and a half miles. Until 1972, when the first women's division marathon opened, the Boston Marathon was a men's division race, so all the pioneer women who ran before 1972 
were, under the AAU rules, unsanctioned runners, running in an as-yet-to-be-sanctioned women's division race. So Bobby Gibb was not a rule-breaker. She was a woman who ran alongside the men who were competing in the race. She happened to run the full distance, and she happened to finish alongside them. This is not the approach that Catherine Switzer took the following year. Catherine Switzer was born in Bavaria, the daughter of a major in the U.S. Army. Her family returned to the U.S. in 1949. She graduated from high school in Fairfax County, Virginia, then attended Lynchburg College. She transferred to Syracuse University in 1967, where she studied journalism and English literature while pursuing a love of distance running and training unofficially with the men's cross-country team. In an interview with Forbes, she explained how this path led her to Hopkinton. I think it's really important for me to say that when I ran that race, I wasn't trying to prove anything. I wanted to run a marathon, and I wanted to run Boston because my coach, Arnie Briggs, had run it 15 times. When I trained with the Syracuse men's team, he told these inspirational stories about what he saw and experienced running Boston. One day, it was just Arnie and me running during a blizzard, and while he told another story, I said, let's stop talking about it and run it. During that snowy run, he said that women couldn't run a marathon. I said that was ridiculous. At the time, the prevailing mindset and myth were that women were not physiologically able to run 26.2 miles. They said that women couldn't do something that arduous, that it might turn a woman's features into that of a man, and a doctor had told me straight away that my uterus would fall out. I'd also told Arnie during our run and argument that that year, 1966, Roberta Gibb had done it when she jumped in from the bushes and ran the entire thing with the men. He didn't believe it, and Arnie and I argued some more. Eventually, he said, Look, if any woman could do it, you could, but you'd have to prove it to me. If you show me you can run 26 miles, I'll be the first one to take you to Boston. And she did. She registered under the gender-neutral K.V. Switzer, which she said was not done to mislead officials. She used K.V. Switzer to sign articles she wrote for a university paper. Her name was also misspelled on her birth certificate, so she often used her initials to avoid confusion. She recalls, When my coach agreed to join me in the race and supported me, he said, No way you can just jump in. You have to register the right way. He checked the rule book, and I checked the rule book. Even though it had been a men-only race for 70 years, it said nothing about gender in the rules of the Boston Marathon and nothing about gender on the sign-up forms. Switzer was issued a number through an oversight in the entry screening process and journeyed to Boston with her coach Arnie, her boyfriend Tom, and John, a member of the cross-country team. It's worth noting that Tom went by Big Tom. He was a 235-pound ex-All-American football player and a nationally ranked hammer thrower. She planned to run in shorts and a light top, but the cold weather necessitated a sweatsuit. She showed up to the starting line in gray sweats, earrings, and lipstick. Much like Bobby's experience the year before, the men were friendly and welcoming. However, the day took an unpleasant turn when race manager Jock Semple attacked her at mile four. She describes that experience in her book, Marathon Woman. Then, at just about mile four, came a honking of horns and someone shouting, Get over! Runners move to your right! There was a lot of shuffling and some cursing as a big flatbed truck forced us all to the side of a narrow road. Following close behind the truck was a city bus. 
It was the photo press truck. On the back were risers so the cameramen could each get a clean shot as the vehicle pushed up to the front of the field. Suddenly, though, the truck slowed to right in front of us, and the photographers were taking our pictures. In fact, they were getting pretty excited to see a woman in the race, a woman wearing numbers. I could see them fumbling to look up my number and name and then shoot again. We all started to laugh and wave. It was our, hi, mom, I'm on the nightly news moment, and it was fun. A man with an overcoat and felt hat was then in the middle of the road shaking his finger at me. He said something to me as I passed and reached out for my hand, catching my glove instead and pulling it off. I did kind of a stutter step. We all had to jostle around him. I thought he was a nutty spectator. But when I passed, I caught a glimpse of a gold and blue BAA pin on his lapel. Where had he come from? Moments later, I heard this scraping noise of leather shoes coming up fast behind me. An alien, an alarming sound amid the muted thump-thumping of rubber-soled running shoes. When a runner hears that kind of noise, it's usually danger, like hearing a dog's paws on the pavement. Instinctively, I jerked my head around quickly and looked square into the most vicious face I'd ever seen. A big man, a huge man with bared teeth was set to pounce, and before I could react, he grabbed my shoulder and flung me back, screaming, Get the hell out of my race and give me those numbers. Then he swiped down my front, trying to rip off my bib number, just as I leapt backwards from him. He missed the numbers, but I was so surprised and frightened that I slightly wet my pants and turned to run. But now the man had the back of my shirt and was swiping at the bib number on my back. I was making little cries, not thinking at all, just trying to get away, when I saw tiny, brave Arnie bat at him and try to push him away, shouting, Leave her alone, Jock. I've trained her. She's okay. Leave her alone. And the man screamed, Stay out of this, Arnie, and swatted him away like a gnat. Arnie knows this maniac, I thought wildly as I tried to pull away. The air was filled only with the clicking whir of motor drive cameras, scuffling sounds, and faintly, one cameraman screeching something I couldn't understand. The bottom was dropping out of my stomach. I had never felt such embarrassment or fear. I'd never been manhandled, never even spanked as a child, and the physical power and swiftness of the attack stunned me. I felt unable to flee, like I was rooted there, and indeed I was, because the man, this jock guy, had me by the shirt. Then a flash of orange flew past and hit jock with a crossbody block. It was Big Tom in the orange Syracuse sweatshirt. There was a thud, whoomp, and Jock was airborne. He landed on the roadside like a pile of wrinkled clothes. Now I felt terror. We've killed this guy, Jock. It's my fault, even though hothead Tom did it. My God, we're all going to jail. Then I saw Arnie's face. It was full of fear, too. His eyes were goggled and he shouted, run like all the adrenaline kicked in, and down the street we ran, flying past the press truck, running like kids out of a haunted house. When the press truck caught up with her, she was essentially attacked again. The truck drove about three feet away from her with reporters hanging out, peppering her with questions about who she was, what she was trying to prove, was she a suffragette, was she a crusader, and when would she quit? Then Jock Simple came by on a bus and threatened them. Then her boyfriend picked a fight with her, and while it isn't definitive in the book we're pretty sure that they broke up before mile seven. Then it started to snow. 
Whenever we see photos of her from that day, it seems like a very momentous occasion, and we look at her like a superhero. But her first-hand account paints a very different picture in terms of the emotions she was feeling along the course. We'll link to photos of the attack and an excerpt from the book in this week's show notes. It's not uncommon to have some doubt during a marathon, but most runners aren't carrying the weight of the future of women's athletics on their shoulders like Bobby and Catherine did. She describes a moment after the press left them alone and the streets were quiet. We were all deep in thought, and my thoughts were moving all over the place. I said quietly to Arnie, You know that guy Jock has gone up ahead and is probably arranging for one of those big Irish cops to arrest us when nobody is looking. If it happens, I'm resisting arrest, okay? And something else. I turned to Arnie and looked him in the eye. Arnie, I'm not sure where you stand in this now, but no matter what, I have to finish this race. Even if you can't, I have to, even on my hands and knees. If I don't finish, people will say women can't do it. And they will say that I was just doing this for the publicity or something. So you need to do whatever you want to do, but I'm finishing. As they slogged on, energy picked up. The crowds were friendly and they slowed their pace to ensure that they would make it to Boylston Street. As the three runners approached the finish line, Catherine and John gave Arnie a push so that their coach finished a step ahead. When Bobby Gibb finished that day, in a time of 3.27.17, several men linked arms across the street to prevent her from crossing the finish line. She simply ran around them. Catherine finished in four hours and 20 minutes. She wasn't blocked, but she also wasn't celebrated. Not to be outdone by Jock Simple, Boston Athletic Association director Will Cloney, when asked his opinion of Switzer competing in the race, said, Women can't run in the marathon because the rules forbid it. Unless we have rules, society will be in chaos. I don't make the rules, but I try to carry them out. We have no space in the marathon for any unauthorized person, even a man. If that girl were my daughter, I'd spank her. Despite the actions of these despicable men, many were ready to see the event open up to women. An April 21, 1967 Globe article by Bud Collins states, It was a terrible thing to see discoloring one of the town's most glorious happenings, the marathon. There were Will Cloney, the director, and Jock Semple, an aide, losing their poise and control, attacking Catherine Switzer, whose crime was that she wanted to run. Fortunately, Miss Switzer was protected by gentlemanly fellow competitors in the race. Two, she was in better shape than Cloney, Semple, or the state cops, and she got away, continuing to the finish. Another female, Bobby Gibb, wasn't mauled, but after she had run the 26 miles and 385 yards, she was insulted by officials who refused to allow her to cross the finish line. What are these ill-mannered men trying to accomplish? We know chivalry is dead, but has it been replaced by boorishness? Women should be recognized as a fairly significant force in the country. They got the right to vote in 1920, and they should get the right to run in 1968. We need no more scenes of their being roughed up on Patriot's Day. Six years later, in 1972, the BAA finally opened a women's division. In 1996, the organization retroactively recognized as champions the unofficial women's leaders of 1966 through 1971. Bobby Gibb was the women's champion in 1966, 67, and 68. Sarah Mae Berman won the following three years. And Nina Kushik won in 1972, the first officially sanctioned women's division. 
In 2018, 13,392 women crossed the starting line in Hopkinton, making up 45% of the race entrants. A higher percentage of them finished than their male counterparts. Desi Linden broke the tape as the first American woman to win the race since 1983. With frigid temperatures, rain, and a driving wind, it was a brutal day on the course. It was so bad that many of the elite runners dropped out. This led to some controversy around the women's prize money. The BAA policy was to award prize money to the top 15 male and female finishers. Sort of. What we learned last year is that prize money was awarded based on division as well as gender. Only women in the elite start were eligible for prize money, so the three non-elite women who placed in the top 15 were initially left out. To clarify this for our listeners who are not avid marathon fans, the elite women start at 9.32 a.m., and the non-elite women start at 10 a.m. with the elite men and wave one of the non-elite open field. The elite women have an earlier start time so that they have the opportunity to race only each other. If everyone started at the same time, the elite women would have to navigate the very fast non-elite men who would crowd their field. Giving the elite women a head start ensures that they can run strategically against their competitors. Jessica Chichester had the fifth fastest time for a woman. Because she didn't qualify to start with the elite women, that means she started the race 28 minutes after them. It's a phenomenal accomplishment, but she wasn't in a race with the elite women, who have their own division, and only that division is eligible for prize money. Amid the uproar after the race, T.K. Skandarian, communications director for the BAA, told Boston.com that the Boston Marathon is a race between competitors who can see each other and strategize accordingly. It is not a time trial. Prize money is awarded on gun time as opposed to net time. If you're racing with the elite women and you realize that there are only three athletes in front of you, it would be unfair to later inform you that you had finished fifth because someone who started in a later wave ran a faster time among different competitors. This seems sensible until you take into account that the men's race is handled differently. The elite men line up in front for their start with a wave of thousands of sub-elite men and women right behind them in the same division. As a result, men who are sub-elite are eligible for prize money. Women who are sub-elite are not, and that disparity is just not acceptable. Fortunately, the three sub-elite women who placed last year were eventually awarded prizes, and this year the rules have changed so that elite men and women will both run their own divisions. We'll be watching and cheering on the runners from a spot in Brookline. If you haven't spectated the marathon before, we highly recommend it. It's a day that is pure Boston. To learn more about Bobby Gibb, Catherine Switzer, and the Boston Marathon, check out this week's show notes at hubhistory.com slash 127. We'll have an article from the Sport Journal on the introduction of the marathon at the 1896 Olympics and firsthand accounts of the race from the Journal of Olympic History. We'll link to interviews with Bobby Gibb and Catherine Switzer and provide links to purchase their books. We'll also include press coverage from the Boston Globe archives on their historic runs. And of course, we'll have links to information about our upcoming event and Marathon Man and Wind and Fire, this week's Boston Book Club picks. If you want to get in touch with us, you can email us at podcast at hubhistory.com. You can call and leave a voicemail at 617 617- 383-9255, and we might play it on the show. We're Hub History on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. 
Or you can go to hubhistory.com and click on the Contact Us link. While you're on the site, hit the subscribe link and be sure that you never miss an episode. If you subscribe on Apple Podcasts, please think about writing us a brief review. It's still the best way to help others discover the show. That's all for now. We'll be back next week. 